Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Sports Forum podcast. I am Ken Reed, and I am your host. At Sports Forum, we try to take a fairly deep dive on a variety of sports issues. I'm also sports policy director for League of Fans, a sports reform project founded by Ralph Nader. Our mission at League of Fans is to fight for the principles of justice, fair play, equal opportunity, civil rights, safety, and civic responsibility in the world of sports. Yes, it's a tall order, but worth the fight. You can find some of our work at leagueoffans.org. Sports Forum is an ongoing discussion on a variety of topics, many of them public policy related. For the most part, we'll be talking about issues beyond the games themselves. You won't hear any talk about who this year's Super Bowl favorites are, which NBA coaches should be fired, or what trades certain Major League Baseball teams should make. Those can certainly be fun topics, but there are plenty of outlets for those types of discussions out there. During each episode of Sports Forum, we'll be examining a single sports issue, and we'll be doing it with a guest who has expertise on the topic at hand. The issues we talk about will range from brain trauma and concussions to Title IX and equal opportunity, and many in between. Our guests will come from all over the country and sometimes beyond and have a variety of sports-related backgrounds. So with that, let's get this episode started. Okay, welcome to another episode of League of Fans Sports Forum podcast, where we take one contemporary sports issue per episode and dive a little deeper on it with an expert. Uh, Today's issue is brain trauma, concussions, and CTE in sports. And we're blessed today to have a guest who's a true superstar in her field. Time Magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world and one of the 50 most influential people in healthcare. Her name is Dr. Ann McKee. She's a professor of neurology and pathology at Boston University and director of neuropathology for VA Boston and director of the BU Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy Center. She specializes in neurodegenerative disease, including Alzheimer's and chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Much of her current research centers on mild traumatic brain injury from contact sports and military service and its long-term consequences. She has examined the brains of numerous former NFL players. She has demonstrated that repetitive, mild, quote unquote, head trauma can provoke CTE, a devastating neurodegenerative disease. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. McKee. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I think first it'd it'd be good if you just kind of told our audience how you got involved with examining the brains of former football players. Well, it's not a, it's not a, a a short story. I, I've, I've always been, I've been looking at brains for 20 some years. I never intended to be a, a neuropathologist, but it just, uh, I landed upon neuropathology sort of in a circuitous way. I started out in internal medicine uh, and then I became really fascinated with the workings of the brain and went into neurology. And I, I, I really enjoyed uh, listening to the patients and hearing hearing their stories. And then I, I was exposed to neuropathology and I found that that it's really the gold standard in terms of understanding why a person is behaving or thinking or acting that way. You know, we, we don't have a, you know, perfect x-ray vision into the brain when we're examining a person. 
Uh, and so the, really the way we know the most about the person is by seeing it, what's happened in their brain. And uh, so that started my third residency in neuropathology. Wow. And I've always been interested in correlating the clinical story with what I saw under the microscope. That's just been an area of fascination. For me, it's like a giant puzzle, really. It's almost you're trying to fit together two pieces of information and, and advance medical knowledge. Um, and so uh, I've been interested in neurodegenerative disease, primarily Alzheimer's disease, possibly because my parents, I was, I was born when my parents were fairly advanced in the years as the youngest of five, a long way away from my other uh, siblings. And, um, and then uh, I came across the, uh, uh, the, the, the brain of a boxer. Uh, he was actually quite a well-known boxer in the New England area. He was diagnosed during life with Alzheimer's disease. And I was fully expecting to see that. Um, but I, I, I came across it, the most extraordinary neuropathology I'd ever seen. Uh, and it was really this florid uh, neurodegeneration characterized by tau, this, this protein that I'd been particularly interested in. Uh, and it was doing all these uh, uh, crazy things, uh, the likes of which I'd never seen before, the way it piled up around blood vessels, it, it involved areas, nuclei of the brain that I'd never seen involved before. Uh, and so it, it really fascinated me. And I wanted to know more about um, what was called dementia pugilistica, the dementia pugilis, or, or also chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And, and then uh, quite uh, serendipitously, I, I, I um, was contacted by Chris Nowinski, uh, a former WWE participant and a former Harvard football player, and he'd become interested because of his, his personal story in the long-term effects of, of concussions. Uh, and uh, he, he was interested in having me examine the brains of former NFL players, if he could, if he could um, uh, talk the families into, into having their brain donated to research. And I, I jumped at the chance. I was, well, you know, I grew up in, Everyone knows this story, but you know, I grew up in a in a football town, Appleton, Wisconsin. It's right next to Green Bay. The biggest thing going on in my childhood was football. My dad played football. My brothers played football. I played football on the in the summers. I mean, my brothers love to make fun of me and make me run through the tires. But you know, I mean, I, I was football is in my blood. I could hear the college stadium, uh, the noise from my house. Uh, so uh, it was really a collision of two keen interests, uh, the neuropathology of, of, of uh, people who'd been repetitively hit in the head and then and also looking at football players. Um, and so the first brain I looked at was John Grimsley who had played nine years in the NFL. He died at the age of 45. He it was an accidental death. He, he was a hunter and guidesman and somehow when cleaning his gun, he'd shot himself in the abdomen and um, so he was the first case and, uh, you know, Chris made the call to the family, his wife, and because she, her best friend was a nurse and she had some knowledge of medical science, she wasn't put off by the proposition as much as some other people might be. And she, and she also had noticed some, some unusual behaviors in her husband that she really couldn't put her finger on, just, just some subtle changes that she, thought were different from, from how she'd known him since they were teenagers and uh, she noticed some changes. So she was curious what those were. And um, 
And yeah, that was the first brain I looked at. And, and he had an extraordinary case of CTE. Uh, and it was so similar to the case of the, of the boxer, except that he died when he was about 30 years younger. And um, it really floored me uh, as a football fan, as a person who watched Brett Favre with a sort of embarrassing, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, adoration. I, I was really, I was really stunned uh, that uh, under that football helmet, um, those guys were experiencing trauma, a considerable trauma. That's what that brain said to me. And um, I immediately showed it to my brother, who's also a physician, or at least I told him of it. Um, and, I, and I remember we, we both had the same reaction as, as enormous football fans. Uh, we've got to tell the NFL. Uh, I, I'm sure they have no idea that this is happening. And uh, we've got to let them know so that they can do something about this. What's the time frame uh, with your discovery and that of Dr. Bennett Amalu, who uh, looked at the brain of Mike Webster, the former Pittsburgh Steeler? And how right. Well, um, actually, I'd looked at the boxer a few years before Bennett's uh, uh, case report had come out. I'd seen Bennett's case report. Uh, so his came out in 2005 and then in 2006. Uh, at that time, I'd only looked at the boxers. Uh, and um, I remember looking at his report and wondering if it was the same thing. Uh, the, the details I thought were lack, you know, there, were, there, were, there were some details lacking in those reports that, that made it so I wasn't sure that it was the same thing I'd seen in the boxer. And I was really curious uh, to look at the brain myself. Uh, I really, wanted that opportunity, but it hadn't, you know, it, it hadn't come my way. But then uh, two years later in 2008, that's when I had my first chance. Okay. And how many former football players have you looked at now and not just NFL players, but I guess. In oh, total? it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, pro I, I don't know the exact, it's well over 500. Wow. Uh, you know, we have hundreds of NFL players. We have hundreds of college players, we have high school players, we have, oh, we're approaching 1100 brains in the brain bank, the majority of whom are, uh, uh, we haven't looked at all of them, we've got a backlog now, but, uh, you know, uh, the, the buy-in from the public has been really extraordinary, and we went from getting maybe five brains the first year we were doing this, to getting, uh, I think we got close to 200 last year, and we were turning some away just because uh, it takes quite a crew to be able to pay for this. You know, I have to pay for everything with grants, uh, uh, federal, you know, I, I proposals to the federal government or the VA. And um, it takes quite a crew to, uh, uh, you know, man the 24-hour hotline when these people die and then to arrange for the brain donation, get a courier to pick up the brain wherever it is. Uh, put it on an airplane and get it to our laboratory. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's a it's an enormous network, and then the brain examination itself takes about at least two months. But uh, um, as I say, we have a backlog, so we're 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 really behind. At one point, a couple of years ago, I remember reading that uh, you had out of a hundred or hundred and one NFL brains, ninety seven of them showed CTE. Is that correct? And and is that percentage held as you've moved on? Well, we published in 2017 that we had 111 former NFL players in the bank. Uh, we'd acquired that number in the eight years of our existence. And um, 
it was 110 out of 111 in that report, about 99%. Wow. Uh, since then, um, it, you know, it's vacillated. We don't obviously do a daily uh, calculation, but it's it's well above uh, 90%. I don't think it's 99%. Okay, and that's uh, a little skewed because you're getting brains of people who probably showed signs of some type of dementia or something. So it's it's not something. fair for people to think that all former or 90% of former NFL players have CTE, right? Well, absolutely. It's a very biased selection. A family has to be interested in having the brain examined. And that usually is prompted by some symptoms in the person. Um, uh, but I will say that after that report came out, uh, a, a couple of other investigators who, who weren't associated with my group um, calculated, uh, you know, based on selection bias, the likelihood of getting all the fo former football players during that time period with CTE. If we'd captured absolutely every single former NFL player who died during that eight year period and they donated the brain, uh, the lowest possible prevalence amongst NFL players uh, is approximately 9.6%. So that's the lowest it could be. Um, but if it, but if it's the much more likely scenario of, that we captured only 10 or 20% of all the NFL players who died during that period with CTE, uh, it rises to 80, 80% and higher. So um, it, it's somewhere in between those two. <laughs> okay, and so I think the general public is pretty well educated this at this point about CTE associated specifically with NFL players. And then I think the general perception is that it's older NFL players that have been retired quite a long time that end up suffering with this. And to some degree that's true, but I know there's been multiple cases now of former college players and even high school players getting this. So it's possible the onset of this could start fairly young, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, people, people, I, I've, this is what I've learned <laughs> now that I'm in a business, there where the public pays a lot of attention. Uh, I've learned that when it's bad news, people sort of try to interpret the news in a way <laughs> that doesn't affect them or affects them the least. So I think a lot of people have compartmentalized this knowledge into, well, that's professional players who play a long time at high levels. Right. Um, but it's, it's not true. I mean, it's also affecting college players and it's devastating to the college players that have been affected by it. And we have had uh, over a hundred uh, 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 football players below the age of 34 who've died. Um, and um, not all of them have had CTE, but, a, but a more than 50% of them. So uh, it's, it's actually quite frightening if you ask me. Uh, and, and when you see, when you're at the receiving end uh, of a, of, and you're seeing a brain of a person who's say 21 or 24, we've had people as young as 17, but when you're at the receiving end and you see CTE and then you, then you talk to the family, you're just overwhelmed with this, how preventable this was and, and um, how tragic it is and how you, you you, you, you see how much the family's suffering and you just want more than anything for this to stop. So, especially with younger athletes like that, 
what symptoms do they typically start showing that would lead someone to think it's possibly CTE? Is it depression, anxiety? Well, it, yeah, it can be a lot of nonspecific symptoms where, you know, people get depressed, people get anxious, right? It doesn't mean that all depression, all anxiety. Um, usually what we see are, those are two common symptoms. We see a change in behavior. So usually there's a change, uh, a development of a mood disorder like depression, a behavioral change like irritability, anger management issues, uh, sort of increased violence, either physically or verbally, uh, impulse changes, uh, short fuse, a little, you know, a hair trigger makes them kind of go off, go off the rails. Um, and, and, and the thing that distinguishes it from the, the, the things that are more treatable like depression and mental health issues and is that it's progressive. It, it doesn't go away and it gets steadily, uh, but slowly worse. So I'm guessing you would probably like to fully know the answer to this question, but what do we know about the mechanism by which repetitive brain trauma as experienced in football players, for example, turns into the disease known as CTE and why some people that have played the same amount of time, had the same amount of hits, get it, and some don't. Is it a is there a genetic component? Yeah. So just the I'm just going to quickly say for the first part of that question, it's the physics of the injury. There's actually considerable uh, uh, movement and acceleration, deceleration, rotational injury that occurs to the brain inside the helmet even in the absence of a concussion, right? You don't have to have a concussion. It's just this rapid movement, acceleration, deceleration, rotation that stretches the brain, the parts of the brain that are most vulnerable to the, that stretch and shearing force. Those are the regions that are disrupted and those are the regions that we see tau uh, deposited. So that's, that's how this disease starts. Um, but why some people get it and some don't? Uh, obviously, we're very interested in that. And um, we are looking at genetic uh, susceptibility factors. Uh, you know, we, we, we have identified a few. We know that APOE4, which is a risk allele for Alzheimer's disease, is also uh, a risk factor in the severity of CTE. We have identified an inflammatory allele. Uh, uh, if people uh, have this, if they inherit this, this allele, uh, they tend to have more resilience to the, the disease. And, and we, we keep, we keep drilling down. So, you know, this is just the beginning. We're getting, we're drilling down and getting more and more of these genes that are, uh, play roles in susceptibility uh, to getting this disease. So it's probably a whole host of these genes. It's not any one single gene. And then it's probably personal factors, like what else is happening in their life. Position, player position is obviously a big deal. Uh, um, For and, example, uh, like linemen, where, where like linemen, like running backs, yeah. like special teams, they seem particularly vulnerable. Okay, I think uh, most people now associate multiple concussions with the increasing risk of CTE. But to me, the scariest thing that I've come across in looking at your research and others is that repetitive subconcussive brain trauma can be just as bad or worse. And there's been a couple studies uh, looking at college players, I think, at 
at the start of the year and at the end of the season in terms of white matter, et cetera. And, and people that didn't even have a recorded concussion showed negative changes. So I think it's especially scary for parents and even the athletes themselves, of course, that you don't have to have seven, eight, 10 concussions to be damaging your brain, correct? Absolutely. And even though, you know, concussions are extremely important, it's important to manage concussions. But I think uh, the, the focus on concussion is really um, avoiding, and this is another instance of avoiding the, the truth. Uh, the real problem is the repetitive head impacts that occur uh, over a, the course of a, a season. It's in the hundreds to so sometimes people say in the thousands. It's those little hits uh, that aren't managed, that aren't recorded. Uh, those are the cumulative head hits that our research has shown over and over uh, lead to the development of CTE. Mm. What is the, the risk to very young players in terms of youth football? Uh, well, I don't have the brains of youth football players, so I can't speak to what I've seen in their brain. But I will say that, you know, young players, especially those that aren't physically developed, uh, their brain, you know, the brain reaches its adult size at the age of three. And really youngsters, you know, physically uh, still developing young people have very heavy, big heads compared to their size, especially you know, the younger they are, the six-year-olds, that's even more true than, than for a 12-year-old. And so they, ha and they have relatively thin necks with a poorly developed musculature. And uh, yet, you know, there are, you know, teams, uh, there are peewee teams that uh, do full contact uh, football. And it's been shown that these young individuals, the velocity of the hits are, are they're equal to adults, or if not even sometimes greater. So um, theoretically, they they're they're like bobble, living bobbleheads, and and uh, and these impacts can have even greater consequences because their brain isn't fully developed. It's still maturing. It's still laying down fiber tracks. It's still making proper connections. Uh, you know, youth all the way up to your early twenties is a huge period of maturation for the brain. Uh, and uh, the brain is, is, is not done <laughs> until your mid-20s. So um, the concern is that the, the effects of these head traumas might be even more damaging for young people. And then there's probably the issue of how long, say you start when you're seven years old playing tackle football and you go all the way through a 10-year NFL career, versus someone who maybe just started in high school and then had a 10-year NFL career. I, I assume the longevity of the contact is another factor. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, we had a paper that came out in, in 2019 that showed it was uh, that for every 2.6 years of football at any level, peewee, uh, middle school, high school, college, NFL, uh, for every 2.6 years of any level of football, you doubled your risk for CTE, uh, uh, which is fairly extraordinary. And um, and then if you play, if and if you played four and a half years of football or less, you were ten times less likely to get 
uh, CTE than someone who played more. And if you played 14 and a half years or more of football at any level, uh, you were 10 times more likely to get CTE than someone that played fewer years. So there is a dose relationship between number of years of playing football and the risk for CTE. It's a very clearly defined dose relationship. And those years of playing football are at any level, including amateur peewee football. That's something that very few people know, I think, and needs more publicity. Right. Um, Chris Nowinski, I know, and his folks, you mentioned Chris before, but there's this thing where they're pushing for 14 being the age when people can start playing football. And to me, that always seemed like some magical number just pulled out of the sky. As you mentioned, the brain is still developing till your early or mid twenties. Why 14? I guess that's when high school starts. Is it just because saying we shouldn't have football all the way through high school would be too traumatic for this society that loves football so much? And so we, we pick 14 or What's the well, thing? I didn't pick the 14, so I really can't speak to it. I, I apologize, uh, but I won't, be, I, I won't be able to really tell you why 14 is a magic number. Um, uh, that's, that's sort of a, a decision that was made by Concussion Legacy and not, not, not based on any of our information. Okay, but I guess 14 is better than seven. 14 is better than seven, right. And, and it's a little, you know, it has to be, it, it is probably um, by necessity a little arbitrary because as you know, one 14 year old, you know, individuals mature and their physical stature can vary so much, especially in their teenage years. You can have a, a 15 year old uh, a football player who looks like a college player and you can have a 15 year old football player that looks like uh, a nine year old. So, uh, you, know, you know, to me, the, the, the important part is they are physically mature so that they have the skills and the, and the muscular uh, abilities to coordinate their play, to avoid head contact. I don't know if that's a magical year to me, but I would, I would vote for physical maturation so that they have the coordination and the skill set to at least try to avoid head contact if it comes yeah. their way. And I assume having strong neck muscles would help too in terms of the whiplash effect. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, strong neck muscles are shown to help be helpful just like NASCAR helmets are fixed to the shoulder. Uh, if, you, if you limit the amount of head movement by bracing the neck, uh, that does mitigate the injury. In fact, that's why uh, blindside hits are actually more dangerous than than hits that you see coming, uh, because you 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 haven't you know uh, reflexively uh, stiffened your head and positioned your head, uh, and so they can actually be more damaging these blindsided hits. This is a related issue, and it bothers me because I think it's not being totally transparent or honest. But I think the NFL, along with other football organizations and some coaches, have oversold players and parents on. There's some magical new high-tech football helmet that's going to come along and prevent concussions and other brain damage. And I think they're doing it in an attempt to reassure athletes, coaches, and fans that football can be safe. There really isn't a magical football helmet, no matter how high-tech we get, right? Because you can't put a helmet on the brain inside of the skull. Exactly right. And it's more of this wishful thinking. Uh, you know, we all we think that, you know, we, if we get a better helmet, we can 
we can design away the risk and uh, it's not true. We have to change the way the game is played. We have to change the rules of the game. Uh, you know, we have to ha dig down deeper and do things that no fan is, 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 wants to do. Yeah, and, and I think it's especially hard with football. With soccer, conceivably, you could get rid of headers and the game would look fairly similar. In hockey, you can get rid of fighting, obviously, number one, and then hard checks above the shoulders into the boards and those type of things. And hockey would look pretty much the same. But in football, there's really no way to get around the, the head contact unless you play flag football and no American's gonna go for that. I completely agree with you. <laughs> yeah, so I guess one thing that I've seen that's positive and helped is like the Ivy League started banning full contact practices during the season during the week. And so just by eliminating or limiting the number of head blows during the week, that's got to be helpful to some degree. It's obviously not going to make it a safe sport, but it's got to help. No, I agree. Any, any limitation of full contact helps. Raising the age that you start, uh, eliminating full contact from practice, uh, all of these are helpful. Another area that the country is focused on is football, football, football. And obviously that's the main issue when it comes to sports, but I know soccer and especially girls in soccer uh, doing a lot of headers or going up and banging heads when they're trying to get the head on the ball. There's a lot of concussions and brain trauma in soccer for both genders. Um, and it, once I started reading all this research and talking to people like you, we, we got my youngest daughter out of soccer and had her focus more on basketball just because of the, the brain risk I see in soccer players and some of the studies on header after header and how some of these balls they're heading are, can, can be coming at up to 50 miles an hour into your head and stuff like that. So my question is, have you found any differences between the genders in terms of likelihood of getting CTE? We just don't have enough information. Uh, we've had, you know, Title IX, uh, you know, the, the demographics of this, of this uh, work is that uh, really women didn't start playing these high contact sports until relatively recently. They weren't in the military until relatively recently. And there's a lag period between, uh, you know, the, the time they play and, and death uh, in most cases. We don't, we do get once in a while, we get a young player, but most, most of the time they're in their middle age or above. And um, so we just don't know. We're, you know, I've read all the literature like you have on um, females recovering more slowly from concussion, being more susceptible to concussion, maybe because of their neck strength, maybe because of the biology of the brain, uh, you know, and having more severe consequences when, when monitored uh, with different techniques like uh, uh, brain scans and, and functional neuroimaging. Um, but we just don't know about CTE. Um, we know that it's in women of uh, interpersonal violence. That's where we've seen the most cases of it. And, um, but we're really lagging uh, in our studies. Uh, we're, we're way behind in looking at women's brains. Back to the issue of concussions. And uh, is it true that once you have a, an, a, a concussion or two that 
it's you become more likely or it's easier to get multiple concussions is that is that something that's true it's like if you have six concussions are you more likely to get seven than if you had zero yeah i i, I can't speak to that really um I, I I'm not sure about that. I, I I could imagine that having more than several concussion uh, causes you to uh, may affect your reaction time or your uh, you know your but I but I really can't speak to that. Uh, I I don't have any direct knowledge of that. Okay. Obviously, we haven't said this directly, but currently the only way to accurately test for the presence of CTE in the brain is to do an autopsy and examine a person's brain after he or she has died. Are, are there any promising blood tests or scans or something that could detect CTE in its early stages, which would allow for an intervention of some type that might prevent the disease's progression or, or getting people out of the sport or something earlier to prevent more repetitive subconcussive impact? Yeah, I mean, this is really the focus of our work. Um, you know, we, we do look at the brain after death, uh, but it's really, uh, but all the focus of our work is on identifying biomarkers to help us diagnose the disease during life uh, and to help us monitor effective treatments. Uh, and so we are looking at blood tests like uh, 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 plasma, uh, tau, for instance. We're also looking at some spinal fluid tests, again, for tau, but other proteins like neurofilament light. Um, they're all in the research realm, and some of them look promising on a group level, meaning that you can pick out the affected people from the non-affected people if you look at them as a group. Uh, but so far, none of the biomarkers are specific enough uh, to be used on an individual level, where you could say in the clinic, aha, this test is above 10 therefore you know you should you, you need to watch out we're not at we're not at that we're not at the individual level of being able to predict um things going wrong same with uh these pet scans uh looking for tau in the brains of of uh, people who've been exposed to head trauma we're making loads and loads of headway uh, no pun sorry um uh, we're making lots and lots of progress uh, we're getting better and better at scanning the tau that's in cte um, but we're still not able to identify the really early cases and we're not able to identify uh, CTE on an individual level. It's only when we take uh, all of the people in the study as a group. Uh, so, but I, but I will say that this is a, an enormous area of interest and, and it's certainly um, an area that I think we will make significant advances in in the next five years. That's positive. Um being able to identify it much sooner. But you said before that the disease is progressive. Has there been any advances in treatment, even if we do identify it much earlier? What can we there, do? There are plenty of anti-tau treatments available. There's things like uh, antisense oligonucleotides, which actually uh, recognize tau and bring it down, you know, pull it down. Uh, 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 and eliminate it. And there, so there's, there's all sorts of anti-tau therapies, many different ways of uh, administering these, these, these potential treatments, uh, but none can be used uh, 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 as a trial in CTE because we can't conclusively identify who has CTE and we can't uh, uh, monitor any particular test to see if it's doing any good. So 
there are, there's loads of things that could be tested, uh, but we just aren't able to test them yet. So even in a former football player that's played 20 years who has depression, anxiety, memory loss, irritability, anger, it's not possible to assume that they might have CTE and just give some of these anti-tau therapies? No, not, not at the present time. Okay. Have you been approached by any players who think they have it on doing something like that on kind of a trial basis? Uh, yeah, I mean, every, well, yes, of course. I mean, this is not, when you have a high, high suspicion that you have CTE, this is not a pleasant diagnosis by any means. And it's not one that anyone wants. And so, yes, players have come asking if there's some medication that could be uh, tried and certainly I'm not in that position. I, I don't have any clinical trials. Uh, I'm hopeful that they'll come in the near future. Okay. Well, I think this might be the toughest question I'll give you in this podcast, especially you being a longtime football fan. I've been a football fan. My dad was a coach, but the evidence seems overwhelming that football is dangerous to the human brain. And my question is, do you think public, school, public schools should be sponsoring an activity like football that is clearly dangerous to the human brain? Well, I think it's an extremely important question. Let me put it that way. <laughs> and uh, uh, my research would say uh, that the risks uh, of, of football are substantial. And unless there are a real substantive changes to the way the game is played, uh, I don't think it should be in the public schools. Yeah, when you think about public tax dollars going to public schools to help enhance the brains of young people to simultaneously be sponsoring an activity that damages the brain, it just doesn't register. But of course, we both know we're in a football mad society and people love football. And you've touched on it before, the issue of avoidance behavior where people can compartmentalize that this isn't gonna hurt my youngster or, or rationalize that the advantages of football, the teamwork, the overcoming adversity, leadership, all those things make the risk bearable. But my thought is there's plenty of other sports that you can develop those characteristics and they don't even have to be sports sometimes. But I'm completely with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> Just for the record. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a mass denial that uh, is really quite extraordinary. And um, you, you see it at all levels. You know, Tom Brady thinks he has a special brain that's especially immune uh, to CTE because it's hardwired for contact somehow. And, uh, you know, uh, Gronkowski thinks that CBD has cured his CTE. So we've got a lot of wishful thinking out there. Yeah, and I've seen some treatments. I, for, I forget what they're called now, but there's a variety of experimental treatments that people, former football players are trying. And you hear every now and then some reports that it's helping them. It's not a cure or anything, but are there any things that you've seen without getting this 
blood test or biomarker test or whatever to see for sure if someone has CTE that people can do if they're very suspicious of having it to improve just their lifestyle or to extend their quality of life at least. Yeah, and you know, it's the same things that we recommend for almost all neurological diseases. Uh, exercise and physical fitness are better for your well-being. I mean, it's it's I don't think it's well appreciated. There's hard medical evidence that uh, physical fitness, aerobic fitness is really fantastic for your brain. Uh, if you have something you know, wrong, if you've had a stroke, if you have Parkinson's disease, if you have the beginnings of Alzheimer's disease, if you have MS, if, you know, if you're physically fit and maintain a, a, an exercise program, you will do better. So I would say, you know, those, those are the things that people have to pay a lot of attention to. And, and I would emphasize, you know, a high quality diet, a Mediterranean diet, uh, all the things that uh, put you at risk for heart disease and high blood pressure are bad for your brain too. Uh, they're very intricately linked, uh, the cardiovascular system and the brain. So anything you can do to lower your cholesterol, uh, lower your hot uh, blood pressure uh, to a normal level to uh, and, and just physical fitness because of it helps supply your brain with with the adequate nutrients through the blood. Uh, that's those are those things that really help. Well, that's that's great advice, and it's interesting because one of our other issues we look at is the need for cardiovascular based physical education in schools, public schools K to twelve, because PE has kind of gone the way of the dinosaur and. Um, Dr. John Rady, who's at Harvard, has done a lot of research and written books on the importance of physical education for young people in schools for academic reasons, it lowers behavior problems, um, and, and then of course, just the physical health part of it. Uh, he calls exercise uh, a, a, something that grows brain cells actually, and, and that it's terribly important. And, if the best thing you can do for kids before they take any big test is to have them go out and run around the building 10 times or something instead of taking extra time studying notes. So that's interesting. Putting, <laughs> putting his research uh, on the importance of physical fitness and exercise with what you just said there, it seems like exercise is probably, if anything's a magic bullet in this world for health reasons, it might be exercise and followed by good nutrition. Yeah, uh, yes, exactly. And, um, and as we know, physical fitness doesn't have to uh, include anything that contacts the head. You know, right. I mean, right. <laughs> there's uh, lots of different options that just uh, promote aerobic fitness, and there's no contact. Yeah, good point. Well, I appreciate your time today. This has been very informative, and you're doing great work. Very interesting work. Like you said, you never thought you'd get into this line of work, but now you're one of the world's foremost experts on it. So I appreciate you taking time to chat with us. Uh, it was nice talking to you. I always think that I'm kind of tired of talking about it and then, then I get into it and, and there's just so much there. So I, I really appreciate it that you had me on. Yes, and I think the more we can educate people to at least make informed decisions, whether it's parents of youngsters who haven't reached the age of adulthood yet and are counting on their parents making decisions for them, or if it's college athletes deciding whether or not they should be playing or not, at least uh, if they're informed, 
you know, I think that's the best thing we can provide people. Yes, yes. And I, and I agree with you about promoting physical fitness. If you want your kids to do well in school, that's a key element. Right. And it's so sad. This is another subject, but we'll, you know, I'll end here to see schools. I saw schools in elementary schools in Georgia that are being built without gyms and PE and recess being cut back because they think they need more seat time in the classrooms. And it just goes against what the research is showing. Exactly. They're ignoring a huge body of work. Um, and it's one of the simplest things to do. It really doesn't take much except uh, some discipline, self-discipline and willpower. Okay. All right. Thanks, Dr. Ann McKee. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Liga Fans Sports Forum Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. You can follow Sports Forum and get information about episodes on Facebook at Sports Forum Podcast. And be sure to go to LigaFans.org to find our latest work on contemporary sports issues. Remember, anyone can be a sports change agent. If you see something in the world of sports that could be better than it is, get involved whether that means with the local youth league or at the national level with a major sports public policy issue. You can make a difference. Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, once said, the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. So the next time you see an opportunity to enhance the positives or mitigate the negatives in sports world, go ahead and get a little crazy. Until next time, take care.